Welcome to On San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm columnist Heather Knight, and I'm joined by Dr. Philip Coffin, Director of Substance Use Research at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. San Franciscans have a lot of questions about the city's injection drug use epidemic, and Dr. Coffin has the answers. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. Um, first, I wanted to ask a question that I think a lot of San Franciscans have, which is that when we walk around the city, we see so much injection drug use happening in the broad daylight in public on city streets. Why has this em- epidemic taken a hold so strongly in San Francisco and throughout the country? Can you kind of explain the backstory on why we're seeing this? Sure. So th- there's kind of two things going on, I guess. San Francisco's been uh, a place where there's a fair amount of substance use for a long time. That's been part of the nature of the city, and uh, and the city's always been very welcoming to anyone in the city, mm-hmm. um, and that means that you know sometimes we have uh, um, a fair number of people who um, sometimes aren't wanted in other places, mm-hmm. and uh, and we're a welcoming city. So that's that that that's sort of part of the San Francisco element. It's nationwide, it's 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 kind of a more complex story. It's kind of two crises that happened. The first was the prescription opiate right. crisis or epidemic, and that was uh, that really started in the late 1990s. And actually, some investigators uh, at Yale picked up on it in New England as, as early as around 1998, 97, 98, mm-hmm. and that was with uh, OxyContin. And it was picked up on nationally in 2007 by the CDC when they started recognizing that there was a escalating, skyrocketing uh, prescription opioid overdose mortality. Mm. And then the interventions to start trying to address it began probably around 2010, which led to which has led to a pretty substantial reduction in opioid prescribing. But, uh, but by that point, we had such a demand for opioids by the number of people that now had uh, opioid use disorders that there wasn't enough opium poppy in the world to fulfill the American habit. Wow. So, uh, so fentanyl emerged, and fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that you can make in a bathtub, and uh, and it's way more potent than heroin or any of the prescription opi- other prescription opioids, and so it's easier to produce and easier to move uh-huh. to where it needs to be. Um, however, it is so potent that it is hard to titrate. It's hard to determine how much you need in a in a use episode, so uh, and it's and it's hard to sort of cut it in proper amounts without doing it in a controlled laboratory facility. Uh-huh. So you end up with opiates on the street that are radically different, radically varying potencies, and um, and overdose rates that are way higher because of because fentanyl having come on the market and replaced a lot. What is of the other effect opioids. of fentanyl on the body? Like, what is the what is it like to take that drug? So. If you think about sort of street opiates that people traditionally buy, so we'll ignore the prescription opioids and think about heroin. So there's there's two kinds of heroin that are two main kinds of heroin. There's black tar heroin, which is what we see west of the Mississippi hmm. and south of the Canadian border. Okay. And there's powder heroin, which is what you'll see east of the Mississippi and north of the Canadian border. Literally between Seattle and Vancouver, you go from tar to powder, never hmm. the twain shall meet. Why is that? It's gangs. It's it's the it's the drug trade control. Uh, or the border patrol isn't that good. The there's a lot of differences between tar and and powder. 
one being the name and what it's going to look like. The tar is kind of blackish, brownish, and the powder is a, a whitish powder. The next difference is the uh, is the effect. So the tar heroin has it has a whole bunch of different opioids in it. It's not just heroin. It's got it's got morphine and codeine, and lots of other opioid alkaloids that makes it kind of kind of a more holistic experience in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of like smoking opium as opposed to using just the morphine or heroin component of the of the opium. Mm-hmm. So people who use tar feel uh, feel a more sort of holistic, full body experience. And then if they go to use the powder heroin, it, to them it feels very sharp. Hmm. And then if you go use fentanyl, that's another big step further. It's a much sharper, more intense high. It's very lipophilic, so it passes really quickly into the brain, through the blood-brain barrier. So when you use fentanyl, the effect is even faster than heroin. And uh, how long that, does that, that last? initial rush. It's going to last sort of an hour-ish. Uh-huh. Uh, so a much shorter high. So it's a more intense high. Um, more edgy and shorter. And it's more addictive, right? How many times do you have to take that to become addicted? So there's, I, I, I can't give a number of times anyone has to take anything to, to, to get addicted, but, um, uh, but fentanyl certainly is difficult to use in a, in a, in a, in a manner that doesn't lead to um, some elements of it of a use disorder mm-hmm. uh, you know apart from its use in pain management and in clinical context it is does it uh, have an appropriate use in that oh yeah, yeah. absolutely okay. yeah we use we use fentanyl um, particularly in cancer pain mm-hmm. metastatic cancer pain end-of-life pain things like that um, fentanyl is a critical and really important and really valuable uh, medication also in clinical settings if you've ever ever had a surgical procedure you've almost certainly been administered fentanyl hmm. it's the go-to opioid for surgical procedures because it's so quick on and so quick off anesthesiologists love it it is also the 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 drug that an anesthesiologist is most likely to develop a disorder with themselves because they have easy access to it oh, wow. so in the medical professional anesthe- medical profession anesthesiologists are the, those most likely to develop an opioid use disorder and it's most likely going to be with fentanyl interesting Another um, difference between the tar and the and the powder that's kind of, I think, really fascinating is uh, the tar heroin. Um, we never quite had the HIV epidemic in the areas with tar heroin as we did in areas with powder heroin. Hmm. Um, now, part of this, of course, we had good syringe access, but added on top of that was um, the uh, was that tar heroin doesn't seem to transmit. Um, the use of tar heroin doesn't seem to transmit HIV as readily as the use of powder heroin, and that is for a couple of reasons. One, the tar sclerosis the veins, so you lose your veins really quickly, and when you're so you're intramuscular injecting, it's not as efficient a route of transmitting HIV. And another is that uh, tar gums up syringes, hmm. so um, it's uh, you have to rinse out your syringe before using it again, so you don't have as much residue and blood left. So um, although we did have HIV crises. From injection in tar areas, um, it was never to the extent as we saw in powder areas. Hmm. And you said this is a tar area. Yeah, right? this is a tar yeah. area. Yeah. Huh. Um, 
And why do people inject so openly in San Francisco? You talked a little bit about the welcoming attitude. I've heard that they want to be in public in case they overdose and they can get help, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. I've also heard that the places they could do it hidden before, like squatting and warehouses, don't really exist anymore because there's so much development. I wonder if any of those are accurate. Yeah, so this this is hard for me to speak to the science because I can't, I can't claim there's science behind it. Okay. But, but in terms of my perception, I think the, the largest driver is is the building mm-hmm. in the city and the lack of squats and the lack of empty lots. There's always been a lot of drug injection going on in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Now it's really hard to find a place to do it mm-hmm. where you're not being seen by other people. Yeah. We do believe that there was an increase in the number of people who inject drugs in San Francisco um, between uh, 2005 and 2012. Uh-huh. Um, since that time, it doesn't seem like we've seen an increase, much of an increase, and it's really since that time, since 2012, I think, when the visibility has increased right. so much. Yeah. So um, the increase over the last five years seems like it, it appears to be mostly visibility as opposed to sheer numbers, mm-hmm. in terms of numbers of people who are injecting drugs. And what does the science say about how to get this off of our sidewalks? I don't know if there is a scientific element to that, but what would you sure. say City Hall should be doing? Because, I mean, I hear from frustrated residents with children who don't want to be walking over dirty needles and seeing this so blatantly. We do a lot of the things that are best practices around managing substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. We, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's largely opioids, but it's also a, a lot of methamphetamine and, and, and a fair amount of cocaine as well. The ways I think about it are um, sort of different levels of prevention, sort of the primary prevention of people not initiating substance use or not developing use disorders, and then thinking about um, uh, ways to manage, ways to minimize the complications of substance use disorders, and then ways to treat substance use disorders to um, uh, towards reduced use or discontinued use. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the mix of there, you know, you, you raise the public injection piece and, uh, and, and discarded syringes. Um, so we on that front specifically, the things that we do, we, we have a pretty aggressive efforts at managing discarded syringes in terms of Department of Public Works and Department of Public Health, doing surveys, looking, try, doing counts, and, and, and picking up uh, discarded syringes. And then the other thing is having uh, um, sharps containers. So we now have, I believe, 19 sharps containers around the city that are designated places like mailbox type uh, facilities, the big ones, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for where people can discard their syringes, and we, you know, we've talked about, or we will talk about, the safer uh, injection services that that we're working on, and that is another element. No one element like this is going to get syringes or drug use completely off the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hope is that combining all of these elements together can um, uh, can take more of it out of the um, public guy. Mm-hmm. Speaking of safe injection sites, there's none currently in the U.S., although San Francisco is on track to probably become the first city to open one, I think, this summer. Um, can you talk about the science behind them and why so many other countries have found that they work? I think Rotterdam likes to claim credit for that in the basement of a church. Oh. Um, the first one that was legally sanctioned is Bern, Switzerland, and it was really Bern and then it, uh, Switzerland, and then it was uh, Germany that the that How many really years ago? Doing these sites. That? 1986 would have oh, been wow. burned. So uh, early 80s, this, this started. So we're pretty far behind the curve, which is unusual for 
San Francisco. <laughs> well, we are part of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on uh, interventions and ways to you know manage uh, substance use and re- reduce uh, the consequences of, of uh, drug use, the the U.S. has not been a leader on very many topics. There's a few where it has, like naloxone for overdose mm-hmm. prevention it has, but um, in many others it, it, it hasn't been a leader. So the facilities pretty quickly grew as a, as a way of managing um, both public drug use mm-hmm. um, and risk for disease transmission and risk for overdose um, and ways to, to, to be able to reach people who otherwise were disconnected from the system and didn't trust traditional uh, medical care model type systems. Mm-hmm. The facility in Vancouver, Insight, which is probably the most well-known um, yeah. injection service, uh, opened in 2001, I believe, and that's also the most heavily researched site. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been there? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And actually, just this week, I was in another site in Edmonton, Canada, in Alberta, that is uh, in a hospital. It's actually an inpatient service, injection service in a hospital, hmm. which I had never seen or heard about before. And it was fascinating to think about um, as a way to, uh, to help people, for example, who are going to be in medical care for a long time, but in, in San Francisco might be leaving against medical advice and hmm. going out on the streets and, um, and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So a service like this helps them to, to stay in the, um, in the hospital. A, fa- a fascinating model, which I I, I I can't foresee in the United States anytime soon. Yeah, um, but a really interesting construct. And then uh, and then Insight came along, and now actually, in 2012, the Canadian Supreme Court looked at uh, Insight, looked at the, the the supervised injection service there, and determined that uh, not only was it legal, but other cities were required to consider developing them. Oh, wow. Because it was it had been proven so beneficial. What is so beneficial about them for skeptical San yeah. Franciscans? So I, I guess I can tell you a little bit of what uh, what a service like this looks like. Yeah. So some, t- some of them are standalone, where it's just a, 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 an injection service alone. Other ones are integrated into other care systems. So you, you might have it next to, uh, next to a clinic um, where somebody can get... Uh, wound care uh, or primary medical care, uh, might be integrated with vaccination services, might be integrated with uh, methadone services Mm -hmm. or buprenorphine or naltrexone or other forms of substance use disorder treatment services. So you can can imagine it in any level from uh, solely an injection service model to a fully integrated uh, one-stop shopping type Mm -hmm. approach. And Generally, there are sort of three parts to such a service. For one is where you enter, and you get triaged, and you uh, you you check in, you sign in, you you register, um, you answer a few questions. Uh, for example, the uh, the service is going to want to know what type of drug that you're likely to be using, mm-hmm. and then is the injection service itself. And inside there, there's generally uh, on average, I think most places have about seven stations where people can inject, and a station is kind of a little cubicle with a mirror and a chair and a table. And Why is there a mirror? So the mirror is there um, both because it can help the person who's injecting to find the right spot, but mm-hmm. also so that the people who are 
supervising the, the service can see if everything is going okay. Hmm. For example, some people lose access to veins in their arms and they may have to inject into their neck. And injecting into your neck can be dangerous, particularly if you do it wrong. If somebody was injecting, let's say, the wrong direction, um, the, the person supervising it you know, is looking around and can see if they're, if they're sticking it in the wrong direction or if they're going somewhere that looks like they're going to hit an artery or something like that. Wow. Um, so they can help to, to guide the person to inject safely. Um, I pictured it like just being an open room, but people are kind of in their own little slots. Yeah, generally it's people in their own little slots. Hmm. Exactly. And then there's a third room, which is a chill-out room, where people can go after they use to, uh, um, to chill out and relax. And that's the room usually where there might be some food there, there might be some, somebody you know, doing, engaged in a research study, or there might be somebody offering services, um, you know, or a social worker might be there, or an addiction counselor might be there. Somebody might be there to offer things to people who, who come to that site. And one of the things that it's led to is really an in, a much increased enrollment in substance use disorder treatment services and in, uh, and in referrals in connection to medical care. Because a lot of people who um, inject drugs have a lot of bad experiences with the healthcare system mm-hmm. and a really hard time trusting traditional models of healthcare. So much like syringe access services, needle exchange programs, are a place where people who don't trust the system are able to connect and get referrals and we and a lot of people get connected to the system through a, a, a needle exchange program. It's where most people would go if they wanted to look into getting treatment for mm-hmm. a substance use disorder that started a needle exchange program because it's people that they trust. Likewise, a, a, a safe injection service is even more in that direction in terms of being able to capture the uh, hardest to reach population and, uh, and link them to services that we have. Um, so that's one thing that injection services have done and I think that's really substantial. Um, they've been shown to reduce hepatitis C and HIV transmission. Um, it gets people more interested in adjusting drug use behaviors and learning about safer drug use and safer injection because when somebody injects drugs, you know, there's there's a lot of things that can go wrong mm-hmm. um, in terms of where they inject, how they inject, the damage they do, damage that can be done to their body, um, and so preventing that kind of damage can be really important. I've taken care of a lot of people who are, for example, a 20-year-old woman who injected drugs for just a few months, but she was doing it wrong, and she got septic femoral thrombophlebitis, where she gets a, an infected clot in the vein in her leg, and that clot is probably never going to really open up. So even if she stops drugs after injecting for a few months when she's in college, she's going to have a swollen leg that she contends with for the rest of her life. She's wow. going to have issues with that leg. And uh, I think it's really a shame for some that somebody you know who experiments with something in their youth um, has to suffer a consequence like that, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah. Um, so That would be a good PSA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this kind of service can help in things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is it, it has definitely shown an ability to reduce overdose mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, uh, the, the probably the, my favorite study is the Vancouver study, 
um, where uh, in the in the vicinity of the injection facility in the downtown east side neighborhood they had a 37 percent reduction in overdose mortality after they opened the wow. injection service do you know offhand how many people overdose in san francisco yeah uh, we have well we have a total of about 200 uh, overdose deaths a year from opioids methamphetamine and cocaine combined wow um, about half are opioid and yeah. the other half are our combination of methamphetamine and cocaine. And it seems like a benefit could possibly be getting some of these needles off the streets if people are doing it inside. Yeah, so that it has also, uh, injection services have also been associated with reduced uh, discarded needles uh -huh. in the neighborhoods where they're opened and reduced public injection. And San Francisco used to require a one-for-one -one needle exchange where you had to bring the nerdy, dirty needle back to get a clean one but ended that a few years ago and now you can pretty much get however many needles you want. Can you talk about, that seems really counterintuitive to most people who aren't familiar with sure. this issue. Can you talk about why that? So there's there's concern, so when you, one of the ways that we plan for public health work is we do mathematical modeling where we look at what would happen if you have, um, if, you, if you did one thing. And when you look at mathematical models of syringe access, if you limit it to one for one, you actually end up with more infected syringes in the community and when you have more infected syringes in the community the risk of somebody actually accessing whether it's through an accidental needle stick or it's through substance use the risk of somebody accessing an infected needle actually goes up hmm. so one for one exchange because um, people just keep can, using the same can way. actually be associated with increased transmission of disease rather than decreased transmission of hmm. disease um, that's the biggest concern the recommendation in uh, disease prevention communities is the goal is to try to get a, a clean needle every time you inject mm -hmm. and we don't approach that in San Francisco we don't we don't probably get a clean needle for I don't know I don't know what the numbers are now but I'm gonna guess every five times somebody injects we don't get anywhere near 100% I don't think anyone does um, and that's part partly for convenience Pe people who are injecting drugs you know it's it's inconvenient to carry that many needles and syringes around with them Anything else you can tell me that people might be interested to know about this topic? I do want to put in a plug for uh, thinking about a, a substance use disorder like we think about type 2 diabetes. Mm. Imagine type 2 diabetes. So I, my, my dad had type 2 diabetes, and he, he didn't control it that well. Uh, my mom would routinely get in his car and find a half a dozen donuts under his chair that he hid from her and snuck uh -huh. and his A1C would be 12 and his glucose would be out of control and and he suffered consequences from it and you know it was frustrating it was hard and it's hard to it was hard to see my dad you know hurt himself like that but he also he saw a doctor who gave him aspirin who gave him a statin who checked his eyes and checked his feet you know and at least delayed the eventual amputation that he had wow. um, and checked his kidneys and did all of that mm -hmm. And um, type 2 diabetes is genetically predicted, so you, it's your genes, uh, your, who your parents are, what mm -hmm. diseases they had, and it's also by lifestyle, so how active you are, how you, how you manage your weight. Um, those things are all together predict type 2 diabetes. And if you think about what predicts an opioid use disorder, it's genetics. Mm -hmm. And it's lifestyle and what, um, what you're exposed to and, and, and how you live. So it's a combination of factors. Both of these are chronic diseases. Neither has a cure that you can take and it goes away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this opioid crisis that we have in the country, we're not going to solve it and there's not going to be any 
opioid use disorders in the country anymore. These are lifetime diseases that we manage. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if we're lucky and we do a really good job, people stay alive a long time, and we have a lot more people using opioids in the country because they stay alive longer. Just like with the HIV epidemic, as mm -hmm. we got better and better at managing it, we had more and more people with HIV because they right. lived. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know, the way we manage it, there are treatments we have for opioid use disorder, and there are treatments we have for type 2 diabetes. And some people don't do well on those treatments. Some people don't accept them, uh, or, they, or the treatments aren't good, don't, just, just don't work well with them. But we don't abandon them. Mm -hmm. We still do everything we can to take care of them. We check their kidneys, we check their feet, we check their eyes, we check their heart, we give them other medications in diabetes and in, and in opioid use disorder, we, or substance use disorders. We, um, we, can, we give them needles and syringes, we give them naloxone to prevent overdose, we, uh, we give them vaccinations for pneumonia and tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis and uh, influenza and we screen them for sexually transmitted infections and HIV and hepatitis C and we can treat their hepatitis C. If they're a stimulant user we know that's a cardiac risk factor so we can aggressively treat their blood pressure and their cholesterol and get them off cigarettes if we can't get them off cocaine for instance. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things we can do uh, in, in the medical system and in the community to help to um, uh, minimize the consequences of uh, substance use disorders, much like we work to minimize the consequences of type 2 diabetes. Hmm. Um, you know, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, brought us a step closer to being able to do this because it changed the funding streams and brought some money into substance use management. So it brings us a step closer to dealing with addiction like we deal with other chronic diseases, which ultimately, frankly, is where we need to be. Mm -hmm. But getting there is a long process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like we're we're a chunk on the way there, mm -hmm. but but we have to keep working on it, and frankly, we have to keep being innovative to get there. Right. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is San Francisco by Goss Prom, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by Dominic Fercasa and Fernando Diaz. For more City Hall coverage, you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Fercasa and me at HNightSF. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.